This is 105.9 The Region. There are so many ways of communicating these days, but nothing seems to beat the one-on-one. This is In Conversation with Ann Romer. Welcome to In Conversation. This show is, in my view, upfront, up close, and life-changing. David Patchell Evans, the glass half full founder and CEO of Good Life Fitness Clubs, has people pumping, pulling, pushing, pounding, and panting positively from coast to coast to coast. His Good Life empire had humble beginnings. A young entrepreneurial David parlayed profits from his small snowplowing business into the largest fitness company in Canada, the fourth largest on the planet. Good Life today boasts 500 clubs, 13,000 employees, and over 2 million members. Talk about your sweat equity. A worldwide leader in the health and fitness industry, an enigmatic entrepreneur, a passionate philanthropist, and a workout whiz himself, David Patchell Evans joins us now in conversation. Welcome to the show, David. So great to have you with us. Oh, it's a pleasure. So here's a question. Your discovery of the healing powers of exercise happened, frankly, quite by accident. I mean that literally and figuratively. How did that come about? How did you figure out that fitness was something you wanted in your life? Well, I had a really bad motorcycle accident where I busted up my clavicle, ripped off my delta, basically kind of pulled my arm off, tore off my chest muscles, wrecked my arm. And um, I was classified as permanently disabled. And, uh, but the place to work out was the Kennedy Fowler Medical Clinic at the University of Western Ontario. I was at First University. And I'm in there, and there are people recovering from sport injuries, regular injuries, and elite athletes, Olympic athletes were training in there too because of the equipment they had. And I said, you know, I can get better. Look at these guys. And I remember being beside a woman uh, training for the butterfly, and she was just kicking it, just kicking it. And I felt so bad. You know, here I am, 20 years old, and I can't do a quarter of what she can do, and I can't even move that shoulder. So, you know, I started going like 20 minutes twice a week, the way they said, and I said to the head guy, you know, what would happen if I came more often? He said, well, you'd get better faster. Hmm. Like, duh. (laughs) As if I should have known that, right? And um, so, you know, I ended up coming four hours a day and, like, got better. And I lost the disabled status. And, you know, I went out for rowing the next year and ended up being, you know, uh, a five-time Canadian rowing champion. I went out for the Olympics in rowing. And, you know, all that because I trained. All that because I put a system in place instead of haphazard fitness. And, you know, I thought, if I can learn this, who else can learn this? Who else can I help? And, and I felt an obligation the way I've been helped to help other people. And that's been my life purpose, is to help other people through the power of fitness, help them have high-quality lives, help them live a long time, help them have joy. And, you know, that was the foundation of, of everything that was to come. So at, at around that time, when did you start to see the early signs of a great businessman? You had a snow plowing business, very small, 
but you did something with that after it grew. Tell me what you did and how you ended up on the path to a fitness empire. Well, the funny part was, is, you know, I traded my, I had two motorcycles. I traded them in on a, an old snowplow, like a 20 year old snowplow Jeep, um, because I started this rowing stuff and in the summertime you have to roll a lot. And so I didn't have time to work all the time. So I needed a way to make money in the wintertime. So I bought this snowplow machine. I'll make money snowplowing. But by fourth year university, I mean, when I was doing a master's, I was making $60,000, dollars a year going to university. And I had 10 guys working for me and I had five trucks. And I've, I found ways to do the void in the snowplowing business where the big trucks didn't want the little lots. And so I focused on little lots which had high volume, a lot, a lot of lots making good money and paid my guys well. And um, that money that I saved allowed me to buy the very first fitness club. And it was a series of events that led you to the purchasing of your first gym. But also, it sounds to me like you devised kind of a very smart business plan with your snowplowing business that you then applied and, and kind of nurtured but also manipulated in a way that worked for the start of your fitness empire. Yeah, I think I was the only guy in business school who had one of his business, in his views in business school, used as a case study. So first we took my snowplowing business and I used it as a case study. Because, I mean, this is free information. I got all these other students helping me figure out how to be smarter, faster, better, right? <laughs> Yes, And then when I was doing a master's in exercise physiology, I also was allowed to do my master's courses in my MBA program at Western. And then I had that, I, I studied how would you open up a fitness club? And so it all came together. Were there other blueprints that you could look at when you ask that question, how do I open a fitness club? I, I don't recall when you started good life with one one gym i don't recall there being yeah and that was well, quite a while ago and i don't recall that there were other industry no, gyms no, chains if you will i don't like that word but franchises no, there's, there's no model there's no no example i mean there was squash clubs and there was you know ymcas but there wasn't you know and there was bodybuilding clubs but that's not what i wanted i wanted a club where everybody could come to that was readily accessible, you know, and, you know, so that's, that was my dream. And then when I went out for the 1980 Olympics, I started the first club training at a club that the national rowing team told me to. And, and the guy said to me one day, he, he said, you asked so many questions. <laughs> Why don't you just buy this business? And I said, well, let me think about it. I'll come back tonight. And so, you know, I went out uh, to my royal practice, came back at 8.30, and brought back a case of beer. You know, I'm from London, from London Ontario, so I brought back the bats, right? <laughs> <laughs> you know, and we had a couple of beers. And um, long story short, two hours later, I owned the business. Wow. Where did you come up with the name Good Life? Driving along the 401. Hmm. I remember it just like yesterday in, oh, in 1990. And... Um, the original, the original clubs were called after the equipment, number one in all of us. Well, they called them number one because we can pick the top business in the city. And then 
there's all these new brands around the marketplace. And I thought, I need something that isn't about the name of a piece of equipment. I need something that, which is about the experience, about what you want to become, about how you want to feel. And all of a sudden, they came to me. And no one liked the name. Hmm. You know, <laughs> I said, no, no, this is what, this is what we're doing. This is, this is the difference we want to make, right? So change the name. And, you know, we were, I was operating at the time under three different names and um, brought them all under that umbrella. Wow. And uh, it, it was a tr- it proved to be a powerful thing. You know, it made people realize this is what I want. It isn't about how big your muscles are. It's about the quality that you get in your heart and your mind and your soul from feeling good. So, David, which is more difficult to go from one to a couple or from one to 500? I mean, I would think that to, that just the small expansion would be the most difficult and then it starts to work. So what was that like for you beginning to expand your vision and your business? There are different points of crisis and opportunity. From one to two is easy. You know, from two to five is harder because what happens is the entrepreneur, you go from one to two, you divide yourself in half. You go to five, now you're only 20% and you're spending your time running from one to another and you're managing people and you can't afford to have infrastructure and all those people behind you. So that's really hard. From five to 20 is perilous. Then at 20, if you invest in your infrastructure, you have a chance to grow. And I've bought a bunch of other competitors between 10 and 20 because they encounter those problems. So you have to make some major investments in about 20 units to get up to 50. And then at 50, you got to make some different investments to get up to 100. And then at 100, it's like, okay, you got to do a whole bunch of other stuff to get to, you know, to almost five, over 500 now of the different brands. And so, um, there's different, you know, when I was picked entrepreneur of the year about 10 years ago, they said I was one of the few people that they put that, given that honor to that hadn't sold out, but they gave me the honor because I'd evolved in all those different stages. And you, you really have to sit back and say, okay, what do I need to do now? Because what I did before won't work going forward. You've also earned accolades as the most admired CEO, the most entrepreneurial, the, you know, the greatest at this, the greatest at that. When it comes to business, let's talk about your commitment to people, and that would be your team, the, the thousands of employees that you have from coast to coast to coast, but also your members. You really have two bosses if you're the entrepreneur. You have your members your members, in my case, or your customer, and you have the people that work with you, your associates. And so I envision an upside down pyramid. And so at the top of that pyramid are my customers and my members. And just under that pyramid are the associates, the staff. And the responsibility falls in the long run down to me, the pinnacle of the pyramid. And so most people think of things the other way around, but my job is to serve. My job is to care about all those different people at the different levels. And if I look after my staff, they'll look after the members. 
Right. And nobody's perfect, you know, but that's the, that's the objective. That's the goal. After the break, we get up close and personal with Good Life's David Patchell Evans. This is In Conversation with Ann Romer. Is there someone you want to learn more about? Drop us a line. Info at 1059theregion.com. Ann Romer will be right back on 1059 The Region. Welcome back to In Conversation with Ann Romer on 1059 The Region. Welcome back. We are speaking with founder and CEO of Good Life Fitness Clubs from right across this country. David, have you ever thought about expanding beyond Canadian borders? I have. I've, I'm the largest group of clubs in New Zealand. Just opened some clubs in Australia at the start of COVID. Um, I've been involved in different clubs in the United States, um, help people in Europe. Um, and, I, and I could have done more of that kind of expansion earlier, um, but I was lucky enough to learn something very important. When I had my first child, um, you know, I was 45, I guess, and she has severe autism. And uh, I had to make a choice then. I had an opportunity to go really go big in Europe and another chance a couple years after that to go big in the United States. But my choice was quality of her life versus just business. And, you know, it's like, okay, I'm going to focus on Canada because I can get home in 24 hours no matter where I am. So if she needs me, I can be home. And so the expansion outside of Canada didn't happen really until the last 10 years when she's now 25. So actually when I think about it, it's the last five years. Wow. And she is, her name is part of an autism research group that you co-founded. You also helped to build the Good Life Family Fitness Hub in Richmond, B.C., and all of these are efforts to find the cause and and cure, if that's the right word, for autism. Your daughter must mean everything to you. Oh, she's awesome. And, <laughs> you, know, um, you know, she's gone from total non-communication, no eye contact, to giving hugs, and she's probably got 100 or 200 words, and... Um, you know, she skis with me, and, uh, you know, we were just up at the cottage together. We kayaked and canoed every day and, you know, keep her active and keep her engaged. And, you know, but from her, I learned so much about how to participate in the real world. Because I, I was, you know, as an athlete and as an ac- academic, you know, I was always focused on how do you how do you get ahead? How do you go faster? And with her, it wasn't about going fast. It was about being present. And, you know, so I just had to be present in her life or she wouldn't be in mine. I had to pay attention at a level that I never knew before. And I had to just accept her the way she was. And I had to, to, to get her behavior to become more normal, let's call it, um, and, and less upset, is I had to praise her for what she did right. And so I ran a home education program for her this way, and people that worked with her, and it just carried over to work. So I was all in the direction of caring, 
that just pushed me to the far extreme of it. It's just like, you know, if people to do something for you, tell them what they did right. And I learned that from my daughter. Yeah. And that could be said about how you treat your, your, the rest of your family, your friends, but also the people who work for you. It's, it's, it's just a way of, of being gracious, but also being a leader and, and loving and kindness, but also directing a path and hoping that everyone has the ability to follow it. Yeah, you have to set an example. You know, you have to be a role model. But you can be an example and a role model in caring and consideration and love. And, you know, it's not just about, it's not just about business because if you do it right, your business will be better. And, you know, I always think long term, you know, it's like, can I leave the planet a better place? And can, can I leave every member's life better? And, you know, there's all the, all the little wrinkles that you have to do in running the business. But if, Inside of your head, inside of your heart, you're thinking, how do I make things better? It it starts with how you meet and greet people. And this is one of the core things of good life. As I say to people, the eyes are the window to the soul. And when you meet someone, before you meet them, decide that they're good. Decide that there's someone that has something to offer you and that you have something to offer them. So if you have that caring inside your head, inside your heart, inside your eyes, people pick up on it. And you will affect more people positively than you would otherwise. And I think that's been the core success of our company. And in your personal life as well, you met Silken Lawman. She's now your wife, Olympic rower. Tell me about what works between the two of you. Well, you know, soaking with the four Olympics, she was a world champion. I was a sculler too, right? I was pretty fast. <laughs> Silken is 60 pounds lighter than me and faster. Always was, right? <laughs> <laughs> she's like, unbelievable, right? You know, so she's a force of nature. And, you know, and she is equally a force of nature in trying to make a positive difference in the world. You know, she's founded... Um, whole movement called unsinkable.com taking the lessons of her life and trying to help other people become the best they can be to cope with, you know, mental and physical and health challenges and just use storytelling as an example to motivate people to become the best, get through hard times. And, you know, so we're um, alpha dogs, (laughs) you know, we said if we, if we ever buy a boat, we're going to call it alpha dogs. You know, because, you know, we're both charged up that way. One time we were in a small boat way up northern BC and we're driving along and there's a grizzly bear on the shoreline. And we sit perfectly quiet watching that grizzly bear flip, you know, huge rocks over looking for crabs. And what we don't realize is that the tide's been going out and now we're grounded. Now we're a good 300, 400 feet away from the grizzly bear, but we're in a foot of water. <laughs> oh, precarious. And, you know, so, you know, and, and Silken hurt her, you know, her story hurt her leg in the Olympics. So I'm saying, I'll get out of the boat and I'll push. And she says, no, I'll get out of the boat and I'll push. <laughs> no, you push, I'll push. Right? That's where we came up with the alpha dogs, right? You know, so um, the intensity we have in our lives, you know, builds on our relationship too, right? So, I mean, it builds positively, 
and you know, and we agree to disagree. And, um, you know, but it just means that, you know, our intensity of focus for each other is, it's huge. Yeah, it sounds huge. You know, David, you've had many challenges through your life. You lost your dad at a very young age. You had the motorcycle accident. Uh, you have this beautiful daughter, but the diagnosis came early in her life that she is autistic. She has autism. You also had a diagnosis yourself a little later in your life, uh, arthritis. How did you handle that? That was tough. It was like, um, you know, I was 32. I just competed in some events, won a bunch of medals, and um, woke up in the morning, and I couldn't grip the sheets. And I looked at my hands. My hands had blown up. Each finger was as big as a cucumber. And my elbows literally were like six inches bigger. And my feet were like watermelons, like just round. And, you know, I had to crawl to get anywhere. And, you know, I couldn't open a doorknob. Um, I left the keys in the car way back then with a pair of pliers that turned the car keys. Um, I, I remember standing outside doors so often waiting for people to open them for me. I remember standing at the Detroit airport once outside a door to get through customs there for like almost two hours because it just happened no one else was coming along. You know, so how do you cope with that? And um, I was so embarrassed at first, you know. And um, I happened to be in my club. Well, I'd run the Boston Marathon uh, with a group of people the year before. One of them was a rheumatologist. And he said, you need to um, stop exercising. I said, no, no, I can't stop exercising. He said, well, you got to remember, this was, you know, 35 years ago, and that was the standard practice then, you know, just don't do anything. And I said, no, I'm going to exercise. This is what I've told everybody else to do. I'm going to keep exercising. And, um, and about two years after that, he changed his mind and said, no, you're right. And I used to speak in the medical school about why you should exercise for arthritis all the time. And Trish Barbado, one of my old instructors, a genius of women now runs the Arthritis Association, right? And um, so... You know, I had to stand up for the whole exercise thing. But, you know, I've gotten much improved since then through a combination of medication, change in diet, but I've kept up the exercise. If I don't exercise, my body debilitates. There's rarely a day that goes by that I don't exercise, mm -hmm. rarely. You know, it, it's key. And yet, is it painful? Yeah. But the alternative is no movement. Yeah, and that's painful. You know, you know the I would have been dead a long time ago if I hadn't exercised, probably 20 years ago, right? Because it was, you know, such a severe level, you know. And I have, on top of rheumatoid arthritis, I have osteoarthritis, so my bones break easy, but I still, you know, ski double diamonds and learn how to ski after that. And, you know, you just, you accept that there will be a, price to pay, whether it's a hard workout or whatever it is, but the quality of life is what it's all about. And, you know, that's a perfect example for people that haven't done fitness is like, you know, your life can be so much better, 20, 50% better if you just exercise three times a week. Huh. Back to that injury, what I didn't really say is it's shifted my mindset from competition to acceptance and doing the, what's the easiest thing you can get someone to do to change their life? 
I was, you know, the first seven years in business, I thought I'm going to make everyone an Olympic athlete. But after that, I thought, you know, yeah, we can still make you an Olympic athlete. But what we really want to do is get everyone in the country off the couch. And that's where the model helping every Canadian have a fit and healthy good life came from is, you know, all of a sudden I went from high level athlete to invalid. And so I thought, I can help other people. So as inspired as I got in first year university from the accident, the injury really revolutionized the business too. I have a quote from you, and it's from 2015. Let me read it to you. I want to help find the cause and cure of autism, to grow our company to 1,000 clubs, our staff to love what they're doing and helping people, to continue to have a great relationship with my family. It's now 2021. Are you feeling that you're achieving all that you have desired? I think the most, you know, my relationship with my family is better than ever. You know, I've only got like, we've all little 500 clubs, so I guess I could have done more there. But, <laughs> you know, that's the way it is. And, uh, and then um, in terms of autism, you know, I funded, oh, I probably spent $15 million funding research on the gut, you know, using Dr. Derek McFay, but at the University of Western Ontario, got given the Canadian Medical Medal of Honor for it. And he did he did all this groundbreaking research on the gut microbiome, biome, and and now there's universities around the world that have whole departments just focused on this, and that didn't exist before. So that research has created a revolution, and you know and we've worked with the Karolinski Institute, you know, that gives an obese prize on this kind of stuff too. And so have I found the cause? No, but I'm pretty positive it starts in the stomach. <laughs> and all the research points to that. And have we found a cure? I'm not sure there is, I'm not sure anymore there is a cure and I'm not sure cure is the right way to put it because the more you go along in the autism world, you realize how unique and special everyone with autism is. And it's, you know, at first, you you know, when you're confronted with it and it's so challenging, but as you learn and mature in it, you know, but I know that we've made a huge, huge difference. I know that, you know, and helping build the autism center and the autism hub in Vancouver, you know, that's probably the best place in the world for people to come and find out about how to get help with autism. And it's that, you know, the the government didn't give money in the last budget because of that autism center and the Miramar Foundation in Montreal together to further research into autism in Canada. So yeah, is there a lot more to be done? But have, yes, but has a lot been accomplished? So much more than almost any other country in the world. So. You know, I, I know that it's made a difference. And you have made a difference. David Patchell Evans, fitness has changed your life. And thank you for trying to give all of us a good life. Oh, thank you. You're so wonderful. <laughs> thank you, David.
follow In Conversation with Ann Romer on Twitter at 1059 The Region. This is 1059 The Region.